Welcome to Superthank on X-Ray FM. And we start to have conversations like we've never had before. Thank you, Brian. Their stories enchant me, and their accidents of language thrill me. But it's their courage that moves me and changes me, and it's their courage I'm grateful for. Today's program features two true stories of gratitude told at Super Thanks' last live event. We gathered at Eastburn in southeast Portland in the last week of July. The evening began with Super Thanks' Kelly Gomez. Our mission of Superthank is to uh, promote a billion acts of radical community gratitude. And what we mean by that is not just thanking people, but there are people and there are entities in our community that make our communities the places we want to live in. And it's not really anybody's particular job to thank them. So we thought, well, how about if we started this initiative of people thanking um, the people and entities that make our community better? And so that's what Super Thank is all about. And thank you for being part of it. Sam Thompson told his own story of gratitude at Super Thank's first live event back in April. This evening, he was the MC. I just uh, am very privileged uh, to be able to be here and host this event for you guys. I think it's fantastic that we get a chance to get together. And a lot of times people don't get to say thank you to people for uh, things that they do. Um, so we're going to get this show going. The first speaker that we have coming up is Mr. Gary Hirsch. Gary Hirsch is the co-founder of On Your Feet at www.oif.com, an early pioneer in using improvisation to help organizations generate new ideas, collaborate, engage audiences, and walk their talk. Gary works closely with clients such as Nike, Intel, Disney, Apple, and others. After improv, Gary's second love is visual art. Currently is obsessed exploring how art can be surprising, delightful, and helpful. With Bot Joy, he does this with small domino robots, large interactive murals, and by encouraging his audience to steal his ideas to get more joy out in the world. So I want everybody, please, to take this time, put your hands together for Mr. Gary Hirsch. All right. Hello, Super Thankers. How are y'all? Good. So I want to start tonight uh, by doing something completely unorthodox. Uh, As you heard, I I do improv mostly, but I was told I had to do something prepared and scripted tonight. Uh, But I'm going to throw it completely off the rails tonight. I want to start by asking you to do something. You, the audience. And here's what I want you to do. I'd like you to turn to somebody next to you right now. And those of you that are coming in, just come on in. You should do that. Uh, turn to somebody next to you right now. And if it's somebody you don't know, even better. So uh, just do that. So I want you to partner up. And just take a second and do that. Find a partner. Say hi if you don't know them, if you do know them. Great. If you've got three of you, then you'll have to figure that out. So does everybody have a partner in this room? Who does not have a partner? I really mean it. Like, I want everyone to experience this. You don't have one, do you? You're going you're gonna to figure it out? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. The person in your pair who is closer to this wall, you're going to be person A for this exercise, which means the other person, you're person B. Nice. Good. Education works. All right. And here's what I want you to do. Person A. 
I want you to think about a time in your life, either at work or at home or whatever is in between those two things, when you were really excited, when you did something that was incredibly meaningful and exciting to you, when you were in the zone, just it was like a time you felt incredibly alive. Think about a time in your life when that was true for you. And here's what you're going to do in a moment, not yet. For 30 seconds, person A, you're going to tell that story, that time, to person B. Now, person B, you've got a job too. Person B, you are going to simply, and this is going to be hard, you're going to simply listen for 30 seconds without saying anything. But at the end of 30 seconds, you've got a job. Here's what you have to do. You have to say, based on what I heard you say, here's what I think you care about. Here's what I think you care about. So you're listening for what's underneath the words, for what they care about. Understood? Person A, person B. I'm going to totally blow my time with this, but I don't care. This is important. Ready, set, 30 seconds. Go. Sorry, that's time. All right, person B, remember, here's your job. Based on what I heard you say, here's what I think you care about. And then person A, you just give them a little bit of feedback. Say, yeah, that's right, or no, not quite. Give them a little bit of feedback on that. So person B, your turn. Go. All right. I'll pause you there. And I just want to check in on something here. That was 30 seconds, 30 seconds, with somebody you may or may not even know in a basement with lighting that's not so great. (laughs) So just raise your hand when that person B said to you, person A, based on what I heard you say after 30 seconds, raise your hand if they kind of nailed it, if they they kind of nailed it. Like, here's what I think you care about. So it is sort of bad lighting, but I'm, so that is, that is more than half the room. And here's what I think. And we could switch this, but of course then I will run out of time. And here's what I think. There are people in our lives and in our community that can do this. And that do this on a daily basis. That know how to listen for what we care about and respond in kind. And when we do this in our lives, when we do this even just now, we build credibility we build connection. And uh, my story tonight is about a particular person who does this. And there are an army of these people out there, and we run into them every day in our lives. But there's a certain community that I really want to talk about, and this is the community of librarians. Yes. Librarians know how to listen for what we care about. But not only that, like if I had to make a T-shirt, and I do, I make T-shirts, uh, I have for a long time. If I had to make a t-shirt that said, um, uh, listen like a librarian, I would also make one on the back that said, speak like a librarian. Because when I was growing up in uh, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, really? (laughs) All right. Uh, I would go to the, I would would wait, I I couldn't wait for for, uh, story time at the Lee Road Library. And 
Uh, I would sprawl out on the sort of disgusting brown-on-brown carpeting, and out would come the librarian. And we've all been there. She brings out her book and has this bizarre, amazing mutant ability to read the book upside down as she looks over the book and still can read it. And this librarian in particular, she had this bobbed haircut, and she had her glasses that were thick and brown, and she'd begin to read. Little Engine That Could, Blueberries for Sal, whatever the hell the story was, didn't matter. But this librarian, and they all have them, at least some do, this librarian voice that kicks in, which is just simply, and I can't do it, I'm trying to, I'm trying to pretend to fake it, because my voice is getting a bit slower. And they get a bit more dulcet tones that start to kick in. And the librarian voice kicks in, and then when it does, I became transported to another place. And this other place was simply this place of slowness, of, of present time, of, of a temporal wormhole of in and out words and story, a narrative bliss of nothingness. And time would just pass as a child, and librarian voice would take over. And by the end, time would stand still, and then the book would close, and I would have to go home. And we all know somebody in our lives who's got librarian voice, right? You've got them. We do. And it doesn't matter what they say to us anymore. It's like whenever I encounter anybody with librarian voice, it'll be like, do you want fries with that? (laughs) Sure. Whatever you say, I'll, I'll take it. There is one particular librarian I want to celebrate for the rest of my story. And my story goes back to 2009. And this was when uh, my daughter, and we'll call her Emma for the sake of this story, because her name is Emma. And uh, Emma was nine, and Emma was in third grade. And third grade Emma, at the time, was a bit shy and a bit reserved. And third grade Emma was finding her own voice at the time. And she was a burgeoning writer and dancer at the time. And she was in love with books. And at that time, she wandered into the Selwood Library, where we lived. And she walked up to the reference librarian desk. And there was Brianne, or Brian. I've talked to Emma, and we've been back and forth on this. And we can't quite remember if it was Brianne or Brian. So through the rest of the story, I will butcher her name. It'll either be Brianne or Brian. And she went up to Brianne, and she said, I am looking for a book. And Brianne, or Brianne, said, well, what are you interested in? She began to listen for what Emma cared about. She asked what engaged her as a third-grade reader, and Emma told her. And Brianne said, well, I just read this book. It just came out on the market, and we just got it to preview it, and it's... It's a bit weird, and it's got a weird title, but here, take it and read it. So Emma went home with this book, and unbeknownst to her parents, she started to read this book. And this book, after chapter four, began to affect my daughter, Emma. And she came to me, and she said, Dad, I'm reading this book. It's a bit disturbing. Now, as a parent, if you're a parent, if your daughter comes to you and says, I'm reading a disturbing book, that might give you a bit of a warning sign, a bit of a bell or two might go off in your head. Mine didn't. I just said, really? Well, what's that book about? And she said, well, it's dystopian. (laughs) Thank you, Brianne. I said, okay, 
I didn't know what that meant, really. <laughs> so Emma educated me. She told me, it's dystopian. It's about a society that takes a small group of their children that come from different geographies, and they put them all together into a single competition. And in that competition, the children take their hands and weapons, and they have a competition where they kill each other until there's only one remaining. It's a really cool book. (laughs) But it's a little disturbing. I said, let me see that. And I look at it, and I start to read it, and I'm like, wow, this is really disturbing, but it's really cool. So I start to read it too. As Emma's reading it, I get a copy, and we start to have conversations like we've never had before. Thank you, Brianne. And at the dinner table, we're talking about characters, and we're talking about things that we're discovering. And I finish the book, and soon after, Emma finishes the book. And again, we're connecting in a way we never had before. And as soon as Emma finishes that book, she picks up a pen and starts to write. Thank you, Brian, Brianne. And she writes, and she writes, and she writes some more. And then she abandons the pen, and she picks up a computer, and she starts to write. And she writes, and she says, I'm writing. And we start to share conversations about what she's writing like we never had before. And I say, what are you writing about? And she says, well, it's dystopian. (laughs) And I say, that's cool, because I know what that is now. And I say, well, what's it about? And she says, well, it's about a group of kids that in a kingdom, a mythological kingdom, where in this kingdom they are compelled to hunt mythological creatures. They must because that's the edict of the society, and they have to hunt them. And if they don't, all these different things happen. And, and she says, let me read you a passage. And so I, I brought one. Here's a passage. Stop, I screamed, but it was too late. She had taken off in one of the fastest sprints I'd ever seen, veering to the left on a separate path. A voice in my head screamed, no, as I ran after her, running with all of the speed I could muster. I missed a thick root in the middle of the path. Right before landing on my face, I rolled, my back hitting the ground, shaking my head, my breath erratic. I stumbled back onto my feet. Grace, I yelled, nothing. Grace, Grace, Grace! I heard no reply. Picking up my gear again, with cloudy tears in my eyes, I started running. This time, it wasn't adrenaline that was pushing me forward. It was fear. Three years later, three years of conversations with my daughter, talking about characters and talking about writing in a way that we had never had before. A 344-page novel was born. Thank you, Brianne. And that takes me to this moment here today. Because of one woman one librarian who was able to listen to what a little girl of nine years old in third grade cared about, a cascade of listening was born. A cascade of listening to what people care about, which allows my daughter, Emma, to be in the audience here with me today. 
to listen to these words and hopefully she can hear what her father cares about this evening. Thank you, Brienne, and thank you, everyone. Clap your hands one more time for Gary Hirsch. Fantastic, fantastic story of thanks and gratitude. Really appreciate that. Uh, we will keep this show going. Next up, we have Miss Joanna Rose. Joanna Rose has published stories, essays, poems, book reviews, a novel called Little Miss Strange, as well as other pieces with fall into none of, these, uh, none of those categories. Her work has appeared in Oregon Humanities, the Oregonian newspaper, and numerous small press journals and anthologies. She and her teaching partner, Stephen Alrit, co-host the Pinewood Table Critique Group. She also spends a great deal of her time working with youth. So next up, to give us a story of gratitude and thanks, everybody, please put your hands together for Miss Joanna Rose. Hello. Thank you. So I'm going to start out I'm going to start out by talking about Roosevelt High School. That's the high school in St. John's. I love that place. There are about 25 languages spoken among the students there. I try to give the students a few tools to tell their stories. Many of them don't want to tell those stories, and I know why. They are stories of walking to California from Guatemala to meet mom. They are stories of sneaking through Ethiopian checkpoints with papers hidden in the baby's dirty diapers. They are stories of being tricked by the older kids in a Thailand refugee camp into sitting on a nest of fire ants. Some of these kids just want to write about sports and music and being an ordinary teenager, safe. And some don't want to write at all, like John. He was from the Sudan, clever and very small at 17. I took him to the library to work with him one time. He tried successfully to distract me by spinning the globe and asking where was New York City and where was Paris and where was Hollywood. This was in 2002. Then he spun the globe again, landed his finger on Afghanistan. He said the word war. He said, George Bush. He laughed his sassy little laugh, and he said, what does that guy know about war? And then he told me about how bones turn pink in the red dust of the Sudan. I understood that I could not ask him to write that. I understood that I had to allow him somehow to see that he could write that. I don't know if he ever did but I think about the pink bones. John changed the way I see the world. I worked a few different times at Jefferson. That was hard. There was hostility among the students and frustration among the faculty. I wanted to be invisible and listen to the kids' rhythmic language, the language they spoke when there were no white people there. I devised a dialogue exercise that was all about street slang. 
It was based on the New York stories of Zora Neale Hurston. One kid wrote about a guy trying to pick a girl up, but the guy was selling wolf tickets. I said, selling wolf tickets? He said, you know that story about the boy who cried wolf, what's it called? Wolf tickets. Bullshitting. I learned a lot. There was one kid named Jamal. He didn't talk at all. He was small, too, like John was. He would just lean back in the back of the room on the back legs of his chair and not make eye contact with anybody or do anything. And I would just pray that he wasn't going to fall over backwards. So one day I was teaching metaphor. I was asking for metaphors for family. I got tribe. I got circus. I got prayer. I got river. And then I heard John say quietly in the back of the room, pack of cigarettes, looking right at me now. And I thought fast. I said, yeah, that's good. They come all together. You hold them close to your heart. And he said, they go away one at a time, and they get smoked. I nodded at him. I said, who has another one? I had to keep moving for his sake and mine. I had just been bestowed an honor. It wouldn't do to weep in front of a class. And then there was Betlayette. She was tall and loud and powerful. Big-time leadership skills, which she did not use for good. She was Haitian, and she and her family had been rescued from a raft in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, picked up by a Navy boat. I said, what was that like? And she said, they'd been really hungry, and the Navy boat people had fed them white rice. She put her hands on her wide hips, and she said, white rice, cooked without salt. They were then dropped off at Guantanamo, where she and her family stayed for a year. The kids played in the alleys there. They learned to check for bodies lying in the alleys, and if there was one there, they went and played in a different alley. I remember breathing very carefully. I said, can you write that story? She gives me the eye roll and says, what, write a story about white rice? Making the whole class crack up laughing, those leadership skills. These kids bring the world close to me. This language thing, the most beautiful poems come from the ELL kids, English language learners. Their broken English rings out lines of poetic compression that makes my insides jump and crack and they say, but is this the right way to say it? And I have to say, no, but I know what you mean, and it's beautiful. And you can say it just like it is if you just call it a poem. <laughs> but they always want to know what's right. I keep secret copies of the originals. I worked at Lincoln and Benson and Grant and MLC and Franklin and Marshall and Madison and Wilson, kids from all over, all with their stories. I spend hours and days with classes as a visiting writer. I see the struggle it is for almost all of them, even the well-to-do kids who can channel NPR and David Sedaris and Ira Glass. I push them away from adverbs and concepts and Latinates and ironic facile language that hides emotion, and sometimes they go where I want them to go because they are good students, even though they are afraid, bullied by words like weird and drama queen. They want to be seen, but they are afraid to be looked at. 
What artist doesn't understand that? Sometimes it makes them not like me anymore. What I learn from them, from all of them, every day, is to do what scares me, to do what I don't want to do, to go where I am a stranger, to take risks, to go into the wilderness of art and away from the sweetly bordered neighborhoods of craft. Now that I am well over 60, I understand how terribly valuable this is if I want to keep living my life. Now that I have lost friends to illness and distance and years, you have to do what is hard. I see it every time. They don't want to do it, or they only want to do it on their terms, but I have this agenda, which the teacher and I have put together, called a lesson plan. And I have to get them to do it, and they do, and I take their scrawled papers home, and I spread them out over my pinewood table, and I just stare at the struggle And I think, could I do that? These residencies always exhaust me, the planning and the critiquing and the getting up and facing a classroom of teenagers. At some point, I stop my own writing until the residency is over. And then, when I start writing again, I am a different writer. Their stories enchant me, and their accidents of language thrill me but it's their courage that moves me and changes me, and it's their courage I'm grateful for. And I love this chance to say it out loud. To programs like literary arts and young musicians and writers, young musicians and artists and Wordstock, to the teachers who invite me into their classrooms, to the fearful and unwilling students, I say thank you. Thank you. Fantastic jam, fantastic job. Put your hands together one more time for Miss Joanna Rose. Superthank is a Portland-based organization that seeks to increase gratitude because radical community gratitude encourages and supports more people doing the work that makes our world a better place. If you have a story of gratitude to share with us, you can email stories at superthank.org or call and leave a voicemail, 503-610-0855. That's 503-610-0855. Speaking of gratitude, I want to thank the composer of all the music on this program, Portland's own Poddington Bear. Superthank is on iTunes. Do us a solid and rate and subscribe. It helps spread the word and the love and the gratitude to a wider audience. This radio program and its live storytelling event is produced by the people of Superthank. Ajene Vaughn, Bjarke Kronberg, Brandon Ross, Harai Kalasa, Jefferson Smith, Kara Hansen, Kelly Gomez, Michelle Jones, Michael Pallad, Paul Cohn, Tim Marcroft, and myself, Eric Klein. 